Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week. And at the end, we're going to crown the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Right. So before we get into the episode proper, there's a story that I wanted to share. And I haven't told you about this yet. No, I have no idea what you're going to say. So like we talked about on our last episode, we had a pretty wild week last week in that we put our house on the market and then by the end of the weekend, we sold our house. So this week was just a continuance of that in that we are now on the other side of things, actively looking for a place. And it's been a lot of emotions and a lot yes. of stress. <laughs> and yeah, emotions are just kind of at a 10 this week. So what I wanted to tell you about is that something that... I forgot about, but was really excited about this week was that Arcade Fire was we're going to be dropping a new single, right? Yes, and they dropped a two-part single called Lightning One and Lightning Two. It dropped on a Thursday, and then I didn't, I forgot about it, so I was going to listen to it on Friday after you left for work, and I was going to listen to it for the first time while I was uh, cleaning up the kitchen and doing some dishes. You had a plan, I, yeah. I did. <laughs> okay, so. You left for the day and I started digging into the dishes and I, I threw on the tracks. And the first one was really great. And I was really into it. And then as the second part, lightning part two started kicking in, I think just the culmination of the stress of the week and finally having a moment to, you know, dig into these songs. And like also just as a bit of a caveat is that arcade fire has been really important to the both of us throughout the course of our relationship mm -hmm. they're a band that we really love when we were quite a bit younger mm -hmm. like i remember going picking up their first record when i was like i don't know 13 14 years old and then we 
drove with your brother out of town to go see them. And I think we've seen them three or four times. And and that time that we went with my brother when he was, he would have been pretty young at the time, like 15, 16. Yeah. We drove to Calgary and back yeah. in the same night. And it was like, we had that kind of meditative, really lovely conversations that only can, seems like one of the places that they can happen organically is when you're driving late at night with like that rhythm of the car and just the quiet and the that shared space. And I remember having some really like important connective conversations between the three of us that night. Yeah. And while still like riding the high from seeing one of the, one of our favorite bands. Yeah. And his too, we've seen Arcade Fire with him a couple times, I think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure every time that they, uh, they announce a concert, we immediately go to him and they're yeah. like, you want, they're coming to town. Do you want to come with us? Yeah. So they've been important to us and also in our relationship with my brother and your brother-in-law. Yeah. So with that history of Arcade Fire and the buildup of stress this week, as soon as that lightning part two kicked in, I'm at the sink doing dishes and I just broke down crying. Oh, I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. I just like, oh. I got hit with a wave of emotion that I wasn't expecting to because I think the song was so affecting on so many mm-hmm. levels for me. Like, it's it's great. Like, I'm so excited for this next album they got coming out. Like, I'm I'm loving the vibe of it. And it's just like, yeah, it hit me so hard. And I, like, I'm just <laughs> crying at the sink doing dishes um, and just listening to these songs on loop and like kind of stuck in that emotional state. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've kind of been there for the last couple of days and this is a good precursor to some more feelings that we had when we yeah. went to see. It will be the last time we talk <laughs> about crying. Yeah. So there, there's a, we went and saw a movie that didn't help these emotions along <laughs> well, the way. The I think it day. did help. Yeah. But... Yes. I'm, I'm wrong to say it didn't help, but it prolonged those emotions yeah. that I was already having earlier in the day by listening to <laughs> the Arcade Fire tracks. That's a very me move to uh, just cry. Yeah. Like it's, Usually for me, like I usually I, I don't just cry out of nowhere. It's usually the catalyst is usually music or a movie that we're watching. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm, I've never really just expressed my emotions out of out of nowhere or openly. <laughs> so not like me when I look at you and I say, <laughs> it's not about you. I'm not upset at you, but I'm really overwhelmed and I just need to cry right now. Yeah, like, that's, okay. yeah that's not you. That's me. No. Wow. Do you know what it was about the song or like what emotion, like what the connector between those two things was? Or was it just this kind of cathartic cry and then that was it? Yeah, I think that just the buildup of everything and just kind of feeling that this was the first time in a very busy week that I was able to just kind of hit a Mm. point where I could relax and do something that I'd been looking forward to and be able to kind of take that moment to just get out of the hustle bustle and focus on and perhaps doing like a mundane thing that you typically do which we hasn't feel like we've gotten to do the mundane things we typically do Mm. at least not in the way we typically have the routine of them for a while now yeah Yeah. oh well it sounds like it was a good thing yeah I, I mean, I listen to those songs that repeat the rest of the day and and throughout the rest of the day, too. Like, it was a typical work day, too. Like, I'm working and yeah. listening to this music. And I, it was ebbs and flows of, like, I'm just riding this high of, like, oh, these songs are awesome. I'm, like, so stoked on this to, like, 
Oh, I'm fe- feeling obliterated again. <laughs> I did listen to them on the uh, the car ride to work when you sent them to me, but they did not have that impact on me. Um, not to say they couldn't at a different time. Question before we start talking about the movies that mm-hmm. we watched this week. Did the cat notice you crying? Uh, yeah, he was on his cat tree and I like looked back at him and he just looked at me. <laughs> he didn't react in any other way. Not really. He's just like, this is a real mom move. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he usually comes and comforts me when I have those moments. Yeah. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to save that and share that with oh. you now because I like I said I feel like it is a good lead into <laughs> yeah we had an emotional movie week or we had an emotional movie one yes I said that really poorly but that's okay okay you started off okay so the first mystery movie pick of the week was on me and I chose the movie Cloverfield this is coming hot off the heels of us seeing the Batman and talking about. Matt Reeves and I, you know, I, I picked it because I it was fresh in my mind after after seeing the Batman, and I and I was also just curious if it if it held up. So it came out back in two thousand eight, which is actually when I worked at the movie theater at the time, and I have this very vivid memory of me and a small group of us that worked at the theater really wanted to see it, mm-hmm. and our boss was like, "Okay, we got the print in. Do you guys want to build it and watch it at midnight?" Oh, lucky before we before it premieres on the friday so yeah we all stayed late and built the movie out of the reels and and watched it and it i remember thinking it, i was so stoked on it i thought it was so good but yeah it was directed by matt reeves it was written by drew goddard who also wrote and directed cabin in the woods one of our favorite horror movie horror satire movies mm-hmm. which is great and it stars michael stahl david T.J. Miller, Lizzie Kaplan, Jessica Lucas, and Ben Feldman of Superstore. <laughs> and Drop Dead Diva, and Drop Dead Diva. I but I remember, too, about this cast, like a big point of um, a big point that Matt Reeves, I remember him saying about this is that he wanted to cast a bunch of nobodies. And now these are all like indie darling people, which I thought was, which I think is kind of funny how it netted out that way. Interestingly, though, I um, wanted to see this movie when it came out. Both because I wanted to see the movie because I like those types of movies, but also because Mike Vogel was in it, who I loved from a movie named or titled Grind, which is like about skaters. Yeah. Adam Brody's in that too. Is he really? Yeah, I yeah. probably liked it. I've seen, I don't remember that movie, but I'm sure if I put it on, it would like all come rushing back to me because I used to watch it on repeat. I bet it's not good. Um, So I like was looking to see him in this movie and he's going to come back up later again too, I think, when we talk about some later movies, but... Yeah, yeah, since then, Lizzie Kaplan, who else? TJ Miller. Uh, yeah, whatever, but <laughs> yes, he is known now. I have some thoughts about this, but I'm curious what you think about Cloverfield all these years later. Um, It holds up, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I am still impressed with just the way the story unfolds in the both the story of, like, the disaster and the story of, like, the characters themselves. I think it's well done. Um, I don't know that I really care for the story of the characters. Yeah. Personally, like I think the way it unfolds is done well, but I think it's like a story I've heard a million times before and like that didn't really hold my interest in the same way it might have um, the first time I saw it or when I hadn't seen so many movies that have a similar story. But the use of found footage, the effects considering it came out quite a while ago, um, they still worked for me. It still feel it. It felt. I remember it feeling so fresh for the found footage genre, 
I felt like, and correct we, me if I'm wrong, like so many movies at that point that were found footage were so like small and contained like Blair Witchy. But we hadn't even seen Blair Witch when we saw this. Didn't we watch Blair Witch for the first time together? We did. But okay. like, I knew that like just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, but this was like on such a big scale. Like this mm. is like this huge like Godzilla-esque monster movie taking place in New York and like these huge set pieces and stuff. Like that, this seemed very, mm, mm-hmm. this seemed very new and Not very just, like, unique. in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, another thing I think is really cool about it is the way that um, the camera itself is a device where like the footage that was previously on the camera cuts in at some points. And like, I, I thought that, the, and the way that they kind of open with this idea of who currently has the footage I, I liked that and I still like that about it. Yeah. I, I feel like while I agree with you, the character story throughout this, it was that's not what kind of that's not the the highlight of the movie or the big takeaway of the movie. But no. I feel like the big, you know, introduction to our characters exposition dump at the beginning of the movie. It's actually really good. Like yeah. it, it's so quick that like you get who everybody is, you get what kind of people they are, and then when we get kind of thrown into the action, you it, it's put all of the chess pieces in the right mm-hmm. place. So I thought yeah, it was it's well written done. well in that way. I just could take or leave the story it tells itself through the characters. I'm more interested in the story of what's happening in the in the city in New York. Yeah, because it is found footage, like. The way that they use cinematography and framing and composition is so, it's so well executed in this movie. Like it's, while it seems random, of course it's very purposeful, you know, when we cut to certain angles or reveal certain, certain things throughout the movie. Yeah. It's very effective. I will say though, I remember feeling motion sick when I watched it. I mean, I didn't this time. And I mean, granted our TV is not as big as a movie theater screen, Maybe it's just I've played more video games since then, which also sometimes make me, make me motion sick, but I've gotten better. But I do remember feeling a little like woozy. Um, I also saw it in the theater and uh, I felt that way when I saw it then. Yeah. Which fair. is fine. Yeah. Rewatching it now, I can see why that would be the case. Yeah. Um, how did this movie make you feel? How did this movie make me feel? It made me feel... Huh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> should have prepared for that (laughs) (laughs) you knew it was coming yeah i did um it made me feel a little nostalgic like this i saw this movie um with my high school boyfriend my grade 12 high school boyfriend and i have like i don't really have like a distinct memory of seeing the movie but i or let me rephrase that i have a distinct memory of seeing and going to the movie but not the movie itself of like driving to the theater and like seeing this movie together i just looked and it came out january 18th so this would have been like shortly after the two of us started dating. Mm-hmm. So it would have been like one of our like first kind of non-friend, not at school, like hangouts probably. Did you hold hands? Probably. Oh, nice. <laughs> I don't remember, but I'm going to say <laughs> yes. Um, Sweet. I'll ask him. But yeah, so it kind of brings me back to second semester grade 12. You know, you're doing more stuff on your own and kind of getting out of town and you're you know everybody can drive and you're starting to feel that uh energy of we're just about done high school like it really starts to i think hit you second semester of grade 12 that like this is coming to an end and that's exciting and scary and even though the movie has nothing to do with that because i saw it at that point in my life it just kind of brings me back to the nostalgia of when i first saw it and kind of 
what was happening in my life and in my mind at the time, even though the movie itself is a totally different thing from that. Yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah. I love a movie that kind of just takes you back to a, a time and place. Yeah, it did that for me. Still, It's still really fun. It's not a movie I think I need to watch all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciate it for what it is and what it did at the particular point in time that it did it. And, you know, good for both Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard for like where they've gone since then as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, sharp left turn in the movie I picked next. Um, I picked the movie Mistress America, which came out in 2015 and is directed by Noah Baumbach and then co-written by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, um, starring, of course, Greta Gerwig and uh, Lola Kirk, who I don't know if I've seen in anything before, as the protagonist, Tracy. Um she has a bit of a familiar face. Yeah, but I, I feel like I looked her up and I hadn't really seen her in anything. Yeah. Um, this, uh, yeah, this was one that I, I picked as my mystery movie pick. What did you think about it? I didn't know what to expect with this one, but I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it's it, Yeah, it made us both laugh out loud a lot. But it's a very specific kind of comedy. Like, I felt like it was so quick. Like, the the wit and the yes ands that were happening throughout the whole thing were very very quick and also very absurd yeah i'm gonna rewind a little bit and give a little bit of context because i feel like well many maybe many people have heard of cloverfield i don't know that many people will have heard of this movie Mm, Yeah, um like when the title card came up you were like i don't know what this is right i i think i was like oh i (laughs) like i i this is a title (laughs) this is a title (laughs) so what it's about, um, IMDb synopsis, a lonely college freshman's life is turned upside down by her impetuous, adventurous stepsister-to-be, which I think is a perfect synopsis. Um, so the lonely college freshman who really is exuding that lonely college freshman energy is the, is Lola Kirk and her character of Tracy. And then the impetuous, adventurous stepsister-to-be is Greta Gerwig's character, Brooke. Um, and it's really about these two characters and kind of the relationship they have and what it reveals about each other. Um, set in New York. We had a very New York week. Yeah, we did. Yeah, very, very New York week because Cloverfield's also New York and then a movie, we two movies we watched later are also New York. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, totally absurd humor. Like, it's the kind of laugh where you kind of just like guffaw quickly and then, and then it stops. Yeah. Like, it's not that extended belly laughter. But it's just these like sharp little laughs. You're like, what? Did they really just say that? Um, yeah. What else did you think about it? In like the humor also being quick, the, you know, the pace of the movie wasn't quick, but the scenes were quick. Yeah. Like it was a lot of just like snippets of like, here's the location in a moment. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. And it just kept lining them up and banging them out real quick. And it made it just added to that absurdity of the whole film, which I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, it kept it moving. Oh, yeah. Until all of a sudden you're in a place near the end where you're like, how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? How did we get here with these people at this place? Yeah. I wanted to just say, like, I love Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's awesome. She's also very babely. Mm-hmm. And she was quite unlikable in this, <laughs> which is which is always, a, a, a that's a twist in itself where you kind of have somebody that's, you know, typically a bit more of a a sweetheart or somebody that's a little bit that typically plays likable characters kind of taking on something like this well it's and it's not like interrupt 
but it's not going. it's not blatantly there's good and bad mm -hmm. it's this very specific kind of unlikable well, yeah what i was gonna say is i find so we recently watched francis ha for the first time and then what else have we seen greta gerwig in greenberg house of the devil <laughs> she's very likable in house of the devil <laughs> yeah. um and then of course we've seen the movies she's made so ladybird which just has her i mean she, she co-wrote this movie and you can feel her wit like mm -hmm. greta gerwig the human beings wit in the writing in the way that wit shows up that just like fast quick dialogue um that just keeps things moving along and is both really funny and really sharp um and then she also did little women i find that often with greta gerwig's characters she plays or characters she writes they're likable characters with these unlikable quirky traits that they charm you despite that unlikability this felt like the opposite an unlikable character with like yes there is some charm to it but it's not overriding the unlikability mm. whereas i do think like i think that ladybird has some unlikability and some annoying tendon like annoying character traits and i think that um it's no it's not joe who does uh Saoirse Ronan play in Little Women. Ugh, it's a sacrilegious. I'm an English teacher. I should know this. Uh, but anyway, her character also, I think, has some things where it's just, why wow, you think you're so great. And you, you know, if Frances Ha has some of those characters as, as well, where it's just like, oh my goodness, like, grow up, right? But there's something fundamentally charming and lovable about them anyway, despite those pretensions or those quirks. And, and to me, this was just like that character with those two traits flipped where the unlikability is heightened and the charm is less yeah i really like how you how you've described that kind of characterization that exists across all of the projects that she's in it's almost and you know i might be way off base here and tell me if i am but i almost think it's her response to the typically male written manic pixie dream girl yeah maybe where you know these like that kind of character is very you know odd and they're different but they're quirky and cute and cool all in service of mm, like mm -hmm. a male character and it's you know the unlikability the, un the unlikable aspects of them become really unlikable to the point you almost don't like that character anymore and then the likable aspects are like not as fleshed out as they probably could be and I, I feel like the way that Greta Gerwig goes about her characters, whether she's writing them or acting as them. Or writing them and acting as them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like you've hit the nail on the head of what she's doing with those kinds of characters. And um, I'm here for it. Like, I, yeah. I think in the end, Mistress America isn't going to be my favorite Greta Gerwig project. Mm -hmm. But I'm really glad I saw it. I really liked Loa Kirk in it. And I'm surprised I haven't seen her in more things. Because she is ultimately the lead. And I, I, uh, she's also charming and unlikable at the same time. Every character in this kind of is. I feel like something that this movie, that this movie does through its characters, that is that it captures what it's like to be a young adult mm -hmm. really well. It's all about you know finding your path. You know, like through Tracy's character, it's about finding your path. But then through Greta Gerwig's character, it's about like making your mark. And I think there's an interesting kind of dynamic that maybe we can relate to at this point in time because we're more the age of the character of Brooke, but we've been the age of the character of Tracy of like being that 18, 19 years old and thinking that the 30 year olds have it figured out and really mm -hmm. looking up to them and then realizing like, oh, they don't have it figured out. And yeah. like, well, I never have it figured out either. Um, yeah, probably not because we're 30 and we, we're <laughs> over 30 and we still don't have it figured out. 
Well, and I think too, when you're younger, whether it's 18 or, or younger, I know for me growing up as a, as a younger person, when you would meet somebody that's older, you know, maybe in their twenties or in their early thirties who you have any semblance of overlap in likes or hobbies or anything like that, you just feel seen and heard and you think that whatever they like then is really cool and you mm-hmm. kind of want to you want to spend time with them and you want to just kind of you know get a longer peek behind the curtain of what adulthood is like through their lens because you know maybe that's what it'll be like for me and i feel like this captures that really well yeah. the dynamic between the two of them i think is really interesting to look at regardless of like your current age um to yeah. kind of either reflect on who you've been and the relationships you've had with people who you kind of looked up to. Or it's a good time to reflect if you're kind of in that age of Brooke's character on how you foster those relationships with people who look up to you. Yeah. Um, it's also great runtime. We also had a week of like short runtimes for the most part at an hour and 24 minutes on Disney+. Plus. Great one to kind of throw on if you want something that like maybe you hadn't heard of before and you just want something that's like kind of funny, kind of a little bit zany with some Greta Gerwig in it. So how'd this movie make you feel? It made me feel grateful that I have been fortunate enough to have a partner to navigate adulthood with. (laughs) (laughs) So that you're not Brooke entirely? Yeah, Yeah. because like I feel like in my late teens, I was making some really bad decisions about the direction I wanted my life to take and just in general of, of in my life making bad decisions. So I definitely could, you know, I was more on that Tracy path. But I think because you and I have been doing life together, it's taught me responsibility. It's taught me how to be more reliable. It's taught me how to communicate and I think how to live less naively. Mm. So it, this movie kind of became a reflection point of just like, oh, thank God <laughs> that we're doing this together. And that, yeah, you know, like some people like might think it's nuts that we like spent all of our 20s together. But yeah. I wouldn't have had it any other way. I'm so, I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And, and same, same. Okay. The next movie is the big daddy of the week. Mm-hmm. It's probably our most anticipated movie of the week. Um, and I think that this was my favorite movie movie this week. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite movies of the past year. And it's probably one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Um, we went to see the movie after Yang at our favorite theater, Metro Cinema again. No problems with the audience this time. The audience yes. were great. Great things to say about this audience. Thank yeah. you to Friday night's showing of After Yang, the audience. Yeah. So it came out in 2021. The writer and director is Kogo Nada. Um, he also did the movie Columbus, which we watched recently and absolutely loved. It was so great. It's based on the short story Saying Goodbye to Yang, which was written by Alexander Weinstein. And I double checked, no relation to the Weinsteins. Oh, phew. So, yeah. It stars Colin Farrell. Jody Turner Smith, Malia Emma, uh, Ch- I'm gonna try to get this right. Chandra Wijaya, uh, Justin H. Min, and Haley Lou Richardson. So a quick synopsis from IMDb: In the near future, a family reckons with questions of love, connection, and loss after their AI helper unexpectedly breaks down. So yeah, love, connection, and loss. Perfectly said. Perfect. So we wanted to see this because, like I said, Columbus was. One of our, and for sure, one of my favorite movies that we've watched recently. It's, it's still 
sits with me. There's another movie where I downloaded the soundtrack because I just wanted to keep living in that world. And I've been doing that a lot lately with some of these movies we've been, we've been watching. And like, we've been really taken with Koganada's patience and depth of his characters and their mm. emotions in, in these two movies or in Columbus. And we were, we were expecting to probably see this here and after Yang. Um, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I'm just going to echo what you said. It totally floored me. And um, I was really wanting to see it. So I was really thankful that Metro Cinema um, put it on their uh, showing list because it hasn't come to any of the kind of chain theaters um, near us. It's just so beautiful, quiet, serene. There's this, yeah, the word, you use the word patience, patience to what Koganada is doing in the two films that we've seen that. I just really appreciate. It's all of those nice things while also being totally obliterating. Yeah. And also, like, it's not doing that and taking three hours to do it. Yeah. Not that I don't like movies like that. Like, Drive My Car has a similar kind of meditative feel. But After Yang is only an hour and 36 minutes. And it doesn't it doesn't feel like it needs to be slow and then stretch out for double that runtime. Um, yeah, it was amazing. I I loved it. Yeah, I did. I did too. I thought like just a couple of things that I I was think I've been thinking about in regards to it are that I love that it uses this sci-fi lens to look at something that's so fundamentally human, which is grief, mm-hmm. and it does it in such a beautiful way that it kind of it it take it takes me back and like whether this is cheesy or not, there's a line from. And the MCU's WandaVision that that kind of came up to me, which is like absolutely beautiful piece of writing across anything that's ever been written, which is what is grief if not if not love persevering. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that could easily be applied to this movie and what it's trying to say. And yeah, I think that to your point, it gets there is this kind this futuristic kind of vibe to it, but it's almost like an anti black mirror. Mm, we're yeah. like the technology is not the point mm-hmm. it's that it's it's what through that lens we can explore about things in our real world which is my absolute favorite thing about any form of media whether it's a video game um because i've been totally moved by video games such as um what's the one with the photos oh life is strange life is strange and and both um last of us games you know, or it's a book, or it's a TV show, or a piece of art, or a piece of music, as you spoke to at the at the top here. Just this ability to take this world that isn't real and help us really sit with things that are real. And by taking it and having it be something that, like, isn't a one-for-one one for what we've experienced, because we haven't experienced, that I know of, out in the world, the loss of a AI, right? But it can help you then, through that lens, reflect on something that you have lost, Right. Um, And I think that this, it's not even just about death. It's about loss in general and the grief of losing something, you know, you can't get back and just trying to reckon with that, like those questions that are left. Yeah. Like I think with you saying that it's, it it made me think of the movie Her, which I still really love that movie. There are some problems with that movie, but I think that some of the, some of the emotions that I felt Mm -hmm. there are similar here. I think I, I felt them in very different ways because they, they are very different stories. While that one is very focused on romantic relationships, this is more focused on family and what family is and how individuals within that family 
deal with a loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we uh, when we were watching this, I mean, the movie ended and we kind of were sitting there kind of reckoning with it. And then I think you were the first one to, to say, so did you cry a bunch through that too? And I was like, oh my goodness, yes, there's a point in the film where the tears just started and they never really stopped. And it wasn't like this heaving... Like, I've had ugly cries in movie theaters or at TV shows, but it was kind of just like the quiet, serene, patient trust that Koganata has in his audience. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of crying. It was just this kind of constant stream of, like, sadness and beauty and love and loss that I was feeling along with the characters. And as they kind of made me think about that in my own life, not these, like, heaving, uncontrollable cries. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is the same day as my arcade, <laughs> your fire. arcade fire kitchen cry. Yeah. So I was already, you know, on top of everything you just said of the, those feelings, I think that mine was also coupled with all of the everything I was already feeling earlier in the day. And yeah, like there's this one point in the, the middle of the movie, almost getting to the third act where there's a moment that hits you. But then I found myself in just kind of a like, I won't. This isn't the right word for it, but a bit of like a nothing moment, like a bit of a transitional scene Mm -hmm. where like there's not really anything happening. It's just a very quiet moment where all of a sudden, yeah, just tears start running down my face and I I, I, and I couldn't stop them. Yeah. And it was pretty much that until the end of the movie. Yeah, me too. And I I don't even know if we talked about what that moment was for each of us. And we're not going to talk about it here because we're committed to being spoiler free. But afterwards, I'd like to find out if we had the same moment where we kind of got re-hit by the emotional wave because i'm curious if it is the same i something about this movie that i really appreciated and i i don't know if everyone would feel the same way but there's movies i really love i'm thinking like Eraserhead, the green knight is a newer one um where i watch it and i really am moved by the experience of it but i also come away being like i don't think i understood that um and then i have to do the thing i do which is like reddit the shit out of it to like find out like what it truly meant or different people's theories on it and then i'm like oh okay i feel like i get it now wow it's brilliant this has these quiet moments that like mean more and are beyond the plot and i felt like i understood them like they just resonated with me on an emotional frequency that like i don't need to go read a theory about what they meant i just felt it deep within me and i i understood it without having to put any words to it yeah that's beautiful. That, that's per- no, that's perfect. That, <laughs> well, thank you. That's like that's exactly it. Like even in the what you could call twist near the end of the movie, like where it kind of reveals something that you weren't expecting to be there. Like even the twist itself was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everything in this movie is handled with such care in Koganada's very gentle fingers, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's just the whole way through. We can't recommend this movie enough. It's it's so good. And all of it is all like I wanted to say too, this is another movie where everything is just buttoned perfectly with the music. Yeah, the music is phenomenal and helps I think helps you reach that emotional frequency that's happening with the really beautiful use of like scene cutting yeah. in interesting ways. There's kind of these two different things being reflected through two two different styles of scene transitions um that were done like the language that the film creates through that um and the understanding of kind of what's going on is is really lovely and and again i'm just going to come back to like 
Koganada seems to trust his audience to get it without mm-hmm. having to be heavy handed or like really exposition or anything like that. He just seems to trust the people who are watching his films to either connect or choose not to. And that's okay. Yeah. And we love a, a spectrum of movies like mm-hmm. the MCU movies, which are very heavy handed with, with the hand holding aspect of their exposition and wanting to make sure everybody on the journey is up to speed with what's going on. And, and even heavy handed with their emotions, like yeah. Q crying now, Q woohoo now. Yeah. And I'm here for it. Yeah. But this is a different side of that spectrum. Yeah. Different end, I guess, of that spectrum. And that's, and what you said, like, it's awesome to have a creator that is willing to trust their audience with picking up those cues for themselves and, you know, being able to feel the emotions that we're feeling along with the story without him having to handhold us throughout the whole thing. Which bing- brings me to a real bone I have to pick, which is that on IMDb, this has a 6.7 and on Letterboxd, this has a 4.0. At, at the time of us recording this, that could fluctuate, of course, a few. 4.0 out of out five. Out of five. Yeah, yeah, out of five. I, as I've mentioned before, don't tend to want to actively watch something that isn't going to be good. There was a couple movies that I was kind of had on my radar that I wanted to watch that have kind of just across the board scored low on IMDb, on Rotten Tomatoes, on review sites that I read and on Letterboxd. I'm like, okay, well, maybe don't give those a try. But if I see something that's a 6.7, I'm probably going to hesitate before watching it. A 6.7 out of 10. Seven or higher, I tend to think like there's some subjectivity involved in that. So a seven to to an audience um, might be a 10 for some and, and not for others, which I get. And that's cool. A six for a horror movie. I'm like, yeah, some people just watch horror movies and hate them and they're just offended by them and they give them ones. So like that I take with a grain of salt. But like, I don't understand how this is a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb and then a 4.0 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Like this was an easy 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5 for me. Mm-hmm. Understanding that it wouldn't be for everyone because it is it is quiet. It is reflective. It is I mean, I didn't find it slow, but I could see how a person who's not connecting with it could feel that way. Or if you're just not in the right frame of mind when you watch it. Like, if the audience was bad, it totally would have pulled me out of it. So, again, thank you. Thank you for not having to complain about the audience this time. Um, We all seemed to really be in it together. And there was some, like, very adorable scattered applause at the end of the movie, (laughs) even though this is nowhere near opening night. Um, It was opening the first showing at Metro, but... I do not understand this disconnect between what it's rated on IMDb and what it's rated on Letterboxd. Yeah, I, I don't. I honestly don't either because I'm I'm the same as you. It's a five out of five, ten out of ten for me. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe that's just maybe that's just it. Maybe people, if you don't have the patience to engage with this, it's it's not going to hit you in the same way. Or I mean, maybe there's just some people who don't feel ready or able to confront the emotions that it brings up, like. There's kind of two major losses I've experienced in the last like 10 or so years of my life. The first being like the death of my father, which was really unexpected. And I will always be dealing with the grief of that, that this made me reflect on. But the other one is the uh, the loss of a friendship that, I mean, you know about this, but I had a really close friend for 13, 14 years, like inseparable. She lived with us and she just ghosted me out of nowhere. And like, I, I it feels like a death to just not know what's going on in that person's life or why they decided to just 
remove themselves from the relationship that we had. And this film really made me reflect on, think about my own feelings of loss and grief related to those two really major relationships that I lost in two totally different ways. Mm. Um, And I could see how a person might just not be ready to confront those feelings because we've, if you're a person who hasn't had to experience grief and loss, like you will eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's a really tough thing. I wanted to speak to that too, because we were watching or we watch uh, a podcast that we listen to. It's called sick boy. Um, They do a Friday episode that they post on YouTube and they were talking about death and it was brought up that humans as creatures that know that we're going to die, that we have a time limit. We kind of deny death and we're kind of death phobic. Mm. And yeah, like if you haven't experienced it, like you said, or even if you have a piece that's focused on grief around loss or around death might not hit you the same way. Or I feel like it's a topic that could, that can be really divisive based on your own personal dealings with the concept of death. Well, I, and, and like, I, I want to come back to, it's not just about death, right? Like, I feel like if I had watched yeah. this film either in the immediate, you know, months after my father's death, do you remember the movie we watched the night I found out my dad had died? Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah. I um, distinctly remember because I <laughs> had a friend kind of <laughs> give me loving shit lately for the way that I do this, which is I just drop bombs on the people in my life through text message. And I remember picking up the phone to uh, the person you were there, you knew about what it ha- you knew that my father had died. And I was careening in grief at the time. And then I just picked up my phone and texted my um, very close friend, Garrett. And I just said, my dad just died. That's all I wrote in the text. And his reply was, I'm on my way. What do you need? And I said, mean girls. <laughs> <laughs> and he came over and the three three of us, maybe the four of us, our roommate as well, mm-hmm. just watched that together. And that's the only headspace I was capable of being in in the immediate aftermath. Like I needed something to escape. I I was not in a place to experience the grief and to reckon with my own inability to reckon with the grief, which is part of what this film is about. How do you confront not wanting to confront grief? Yeah. And how do you confront how different people who are grieving over the same loss, grieving in different ways? Right. Yeah. And I feel like that idea of like humans not wanting to deal with that was, yeah, like you said, it's very prevalent in this movie, in its characters. And I, and so to just kind of reiterate the same point, I think if I had tried to watch this film in the immediate kind of months when I realized that like that friendship that I'd had that had been so important to me for so much of my life was gone and there was nothing I could do about it because that was the choice this person had made and because this person had chosen to just disappear, I wasn't going to get answers about why. Like I would not have been in a space to accept what this movie was offering me. Yeah, that's fair. And so I don't know if maybe there's just some, you know, people on Letterboxd are a little bit more aware of what they're getting themselves into when they go to watch a particular movie or, or not. But that discount, the, an 8 versus a 6.7 is is like pretty extreme to me because you're always going to get some variation, which is some movies don't hit people. Like when we talked about The Worst Person in the World, I feel like at a different point in time, I would have liked that movie a lot more. And so I think we were really cautious to speak to that, that like because of our emotional and tiredness level at the time that we watched it and where we watched it and who else was there like the audience it didn't hit us in the way it might have otherwise but yeah this 
to both of us, this movie is like a slam dunk. Amazing. You need to be in the right headspace for it. You need to be able to kind of go to that place that Coconut is offering you to go to. Amazing. I have a couple um, goofy things I want to talk about with it, if that's okay, after yeah. this heavy, heavy stuff. Yeah, go for um, it. I'll start with the less goofy one that I'm going to re-reference later, but I just, I have this <laughs> lately more than ever, but I've always felt this way, this issue with casting people and making them do accents yeah, because they don't do them well. Um, and I'm getting more and more annoyed in my, in, in the age I'm at now with like, casting people to speak um like so chernobyl where it's like it's set in russia but we'll have people speak english in a russian accent and they're not russian or the reader where it's set in germany but we'll have them speak english in a german accent um and recently with the last duel they did that as well and i'm like can we not just cast french people like what is what is this can we not just cast german people and put on subtitles what is this resistance to doing this how many levels of disbelief do you want us to suspend (laughs) here like they don't speak English and German accents in Germany other than the moments where they're speaking English. So I'm just so here for Koganada just letting the actors speak in their real voices because in real life um, different people have different accents regardless of what city you're in. <laughs> like not everybody talks the same. So loved, loved, loved that. Um, loved getting to hear Colin Farrell just speak in his real voice. But the other thing is there are two cameos in this that I just loved. And I don't think it's a spoiler to just say that there's these actors are in it because if you look at the IMDb page, they're in it. But Brett Deer of your recent Bad Dad nomination, <laughs> Fame and uh, Fresh, is in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's also so unlikable in the like brief moment he's in it here. Um, but also, I just want to give like a major shout out to the actress Eve Lindley, who has the smallest, smallest little cameo in a coffee shop in this. Um, but she was in the series Dispatches from Elsewhere that I don't feel enough people have seen. And she was just phenomenal in it. And I remember being like, I can't wait to see where she goes next. And she is not getting cast enough. Mm-hmm. So I I have no control and no power. We're just, as you often say, two little guys in our basement. But I, I'm putting it out into the universe, cast Eve Lindley and more things that aren't cameos in coffee shops. But I was delighted to see her face show up. Yeah. Big time, please. Manifest. Well, I think she is a little famous, but make, make her, her more, more famous. famous. That's great. I mean, I feel like we've unpacked a lot, but, you know, to kind of button everything, how'd this make you feel? Oh, it just made me feel very seen, very, like, able to access big questions and feelings that, like, I that I think I just our general culture doesn't give room for. And I felt very grateful to be able to experience those things through this real generosity that Koganata has to offer to his audience. Um, And then to have that open a door to us to be able to talk about those things because it's hard to talk about grief. You know, like I I say facetiously in this podcast and in life all the time, like my dad's dead and people do not know how to react to that. And I've said this to you many times. I just want to be able to talk about my my dad the way anybody would without having people feel awkward and weird about it. So, like, I was grateful to have that film be something that could, like, open natural conversations about what it feels like to grieve. Yeah, so I just, it, it made me feel really grateful. That's awesome. But, you know, if you can 
go see this. It, if if you're in our city, it's playing at the Metro a few more times. Go check it out um, or check it out when it finally comes out. Also check out Columbus, mm-hmm. uh, um, first uh, full-length movie. Also, you know, very contemplative in its own right about something very different. And it has one of my more recent crushes as well, <laughs> Haley Lou Richardson in it, who's, yeah, just like very understated babe. Oh, also, we got Columbus from the library. So if you're in Edmonton, EPL, EPL. it's there for you. EPL, baby. Okay. So speaking of big emotions, <laughs> we're, we're going to hit you. Nice transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was my mystery movie pick next. And I wanted to pick something you had never seen before. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I went with the 1988 slam dunk hit, Big. <laughs> starring Tom Hanks. Slam dunk hit. Wow. <laughs> Tom Hanks, Elizabeth Perkins, John Hurd. Jared Rustin and Mercedes Rill. Uh, it was directed by Penny Marshall, written by Gary Ross and Anne Spielberg, who I checked out is Steven Spielberg's sister. It was written by Gary Ross? Yeah. Who's like, that? Like of Pleasantville fame? Oh, I don't know. You would know, English teacher. Yeah, I just finished teaching it. Uh, yeah, he directed Pleasantville. Did he write Pleasantville? I got to take, take a beat here. Yeah, he did. Oh my goodness, he wrote and directed Pleasantville. I like that movie better. Sorry, getting, getting ahead of myself. You continue. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I said, I, I wanted to pick something that you'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. I loved this movie as a kid. I watched it quite a bit. And, uh, this is another one I was curious, does this hold up? Cause it's, it's been a while since I've watched mm-hmm. it. I, I don't think that I've watched it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So it's been a hot minute. You've talked about watching it often with me and I've kind of just been like, yep, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, this was, this was a matinee before we were going to the theater again for our next movie. But before we get to that, what do you think of this one? <laughs> this is a ride. This was a ride. It's all, like one of those ones in a different way than when we talked about Night of the Living Dead because that was specific to the fact that it was such an influential horror film. But just because this is an iconic film, a famous film, I'd seen clips of it and I knew the general plot of it. And I was a really big fan of the game Seen It. Really big fan? Oh. I did not do that on purpose, but yes, a really big fan of the game Seen It, the uh, DVD movie game. Like, you put a DVD in, and then it, it was a game about movies. If you haven't heard of it, it, it was quite a cumbersome game. People didn't like to play with me because I just wanted to play it on repeat, and then I knew the answers. But I think there were clips from Big. Sometimes I'm like, I've seen this scene when I watch a movie that is like more iconic that I had never seen before. And I'm like, oh, because it was from Seen It. And I played scene it again and again and again. So I've seen this scene many times. And I'm pretty sure the piano scene that most everybody knows about, or the keyboard scene, it, it was in the game scene. It. I could be wrong. And I've just seen that scene. Wow, I'm saying the word scene a lot. Um, <laughs> just in general pop culture. But it was it was fun. It had some iffy stuff. Mm-hmm. That there was like, if you know, you know. And we won't talk about what it is. But I was like, please don't go there please don't go there. You didn't remember if they went there and then they went there and it was like, why? No. Yeah. I mean, like the plot being that it's a 13 year old kid that makes a wish and becomes big and big in this case means Means an adult means Tom Hanks. 30 is he 30 in it. Yeah. He looks older than us. I want to say. Yeah. But something that like, Again, having not watched this in, since I was a kid, now watching it through an adult lens, I'm just, I'm picking up on so many more things now from the adult <laughs> conversations and seeing it now, 
This is a horror movie from his mom's perspective. (laughs) There are some moments with the mom that I was like, whoa, this movie like went there with what the mom is experiencing and thinking. Yeah. And and it's just this like subplot in the background that I'm like, can somebody pull a like, I guess Wicked wouldn't be the right comparison, but is there a movie where like we see the same movie done from two different perspectives? I guess it would be like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a... Wow, I'm getting really English teachery on you. No joke. Um, so the play Hamlet, which I think most of us have heard of, <laughs> probably by, by Billy S. By Billy S. <laughs> uh, Hamlet is Hamlet as we know it, um, and there's two characters in Hamlet named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern who are just these kind of partly comedic relief, but um, Hamlet's stepdaddy uh, hires them. They're not really hires them. Calls Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to spy on Hamlet because they're his old buddies um, and he thinks they'll be able to discern why Hamlet is acting mad um, and mad as in like crazy. But there's a play that somebody wrote later called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is the plot of Hamlet through Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's perspective. Mm. Also great name. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I love it. Uh, I actually have not read it or seen the movie version of it, but I know about it. And I feel like someone should do that with this movie, but from the mom's perspective, and it would full on be a horror movie. I wasn't sure you were going with all of that, but... But I, it connected in the end? Yep, yeah, got it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Little detour, we made our way back. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Like, I, I could not believe... I couldn't fathom being in the mom's shoes and dealing with what she's dealing with in this movie. And like I feel like they don't shy away from how big of a deal it is, but they also do not explore it. Yeah. Like they want to keep this light and fun, but there's a very real I think it was probably supposed to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. Yeah. I'm just I'm just like mouth agape and just like, "Oh my god, this is very real and this sucks. This is awful." Also the first of two movies with a that we saw this week with a great detail on a milk carton if you're paying attention. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, it's it's fine. It has probably one of my favorite comedic moments in it that involves Tom Hanks eating some seafood. <laughs> oh, my God, it floored me. And it's, it's also, it makes so much sense because this kind of humor still makes me laugh. To, like it's always made me laugh since I was a kid. Well, I'm fairly certain that there was multiple times that I turned to you and said, "You just are big. Like you just are." <laughs> I'm just a 13 year old boy in a 32 year old man body. You <laughs> no, but like <laughs> I am not Elizabeth Perkins in this situation. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but just like some of the stuff that big version of Josh does, like you do that. Yeah, and I'm like, guilty. whoa! Did you like? Does it just in your core being because you were watching this from the time <laughs> you were young? Um, so that was funny. There's just this general thing that I think when you reach the point where you're like kind of probably late teens and older, when there's a movie that you loved as a kid, which like very objectively might be bad, and this movie's not objectively bad. I'm, I am not saying that. In fact, uh, it, apparently it's objectively good. You love it no matter what because it has this nostalgic meaning to you. Like one of mine is Mac and Me. <laughs> <laughs> like pre-Paul Rudd showing the clips on Conan. Yeah, I, I also earnestly rented that movie from like oh, video update. We, my family watched that movie all the time. Like we thought it was great. I feel like at the beginning of our relationship, 
we bonded over this. And I feel like didn't we hunt down the DVD? And I think we tried to watch it, and we were like, "This is bad." Yeah, like it's not good. <laughs> but there's this sense of like when you love something as a kid, even if it's like not great as an adult, there's just this nostalgia to it. And oh, I can't believe I'm going to admit this here, but like I do not like the Princess Bride. And I never saw it when I was a kid. And like you claim I've never really seen it, but I have. I watched it in junior high, like at, in school, which like uh, as, as an English teacher, I can't believe I'm saying this, but what a way to kill your ability to love a film watching it in school. <laughs> Sorry, students. Um, I'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean you're not going to love it in the same way. If the first time you watched it, you were studying it, you know, and watching it like over the course of several classes while going home in between and, you know, that kind of stuff. Besides the point. And I've struggled to try and get you to find the same love for the never ending story that I have. So, yeah, I liked it. I'm glad I've seen it. Didn't see it when I was a kid. Yeah, fair. How'd it make you feel? (laughs) Goofy. Made me feel goofy. It was it was fun. I had a good laugh at it. Um also made me feel feel a little icked out at times mm-hmm. um but it was just it was a fun time yeah i feel like the amount of time that it's been since we since i watched it last will be the amount of time from when i'll watch it next if ever yeah yeah okay totally different vibe now <laughs> um this is part two of our a24 weekend yeah we so we were really excited to see both after yang and ty west looked it up his name is ty west yeah for sure yeah, for sure i watched several youtube videos of him saying his own name okay great that's unless great. he's tricking us babe that's great thank research. you <laughs> little youtube clippies <laughs> even watched one with the what's in your bag with him and sarah paxton where they both say hi i'm ty west at the same time which i think was supposed to be cute and funny and it was um <laughs> so we've been looking forward to seeing ty west's ex when it came out um and it just so happened that this was also the week that uh metro was playing after yang and it was the best show time for us to see that so we were like okay it's a a24 weekend so we went and saw on saturday night um ty west's brand new 2022 movie x starring some folks i haven't seen in a while and one that i've been seeing a lot lately so mia goth as the the lead maxine um britney snow of Airspray fame. Jenny Ortega, who's in the new Scream movie, and is in that new movie about the school shooting that I like haven't been able to bring myself to watch. Is it the one with Maddie from yeah, Dance from Moms? Dance Moms? Yeah. But I've heard good things about it. Um Martin Henderson, who at the end of the film I said, What do we know him from? And you said Grey's Anatomy, and I was like, Oh, <laughs> right. Um and Kid Cudi, is that how you say his name? Kid Cuddy? Kid Cuddy. Kid Cuddy. Sorry. Um Kid Cudi. <laughs> Like, you can tell that I don't know much about... He's a musician, yes? Yeah. Yeah, wow. I know so much. I did great. I was so focused on the research about how to say Ty West's name that I didn't reflect on the other one. That's okay. I could know... I don't know a single thing about Kid Cudi. Other than how to say his name. (laughs) So anyway, we went to see this movie. Uh, It was a romp. The synopsis of it is, in 1979, a group of young filmmakers set out to make an adult film in rural Texas... When the reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast finds themselves fighting for their lives. What did you think of it? I thought, and I continue to think, that Ty West has such an expert grasp on horror subgenres. Mm-hmm. His movie, which I mentioned earlier, House of the Devil, is such a great throwback to classic horror movies 
while having it feel like reinvigorated and fresh, he does that here too. Mm-hmm. That, you know, was like kind of like spooky house, maybe some cult stuff happening. This is like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, creepy slasher movie. The way he goes about it, he understands the horror genre and he understands all of its subgenres and how to play into the tropes or play off of the tropes that are set up in each of those. Yeah, in both ways that are really smart and also like allow for such a clear grasp of the humor of the situation like Mm -hmm. that we're all in on this together you know what we're all in on the way that this is homaging texas chainsaw massacre together yeah so different kind of trust i think he has in his audience from what we said about koganata but a trust in his audience nonetheless that like we like horror movies just like he likes horror movies and like here it is on a platter for us yeah speaking of audience Kylie's got a weekly audience gripe from the movie theater. Okay, not not a gripe so much, but something that brought up something I want to talk about when it comes to horror movies. So there's two kinds of movies that I particularly worry about seeing with an audience and having them ruin my experience. One are quiet films. It's like worst person in the world. Yeah, this also happened when we saw 1917. Wait, is that the one that's like the one shot? 1917 is the the war movie. Is, yeah, where it's like it? one long tracking shot. Oh, is it? Maybe it is. Okay. Yeah, Dunkirk's the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Anyway, that was a pretty quiet movie. Somebody made like a really annoying comment at like the one part in that film where it like cuts the tracking shot. It was really annoying. Green Knight, people were getting restless and talking throughout it because they like clearly didn't realize what they signed up for. The Favorite, that happened too as well. So I worry about these either quiet or strange movies that like audience members, especially if you go to a ra- like a chain theater, Maybe they don't realize what they've signed up for when they've gone into the movie. They're just like, oh, this is a movie about kings and queens. It's going to be like the king's speech. Then mm. it's not. It's it's the favorite instead. Um, but the other thing is horror movies. Like You can get such a junk audience at a horror movie. You can either get the greatest audience, that, like we're all here together for the same thing, or you can get the audience we had during Hereditary, where it's like a group of people up in the corner making the clicking sound the whole time, or mm. the clucking sound the whole time. Um, I remember seeing The Visit and the audience was terrible. So there's like a particular kind of like fear, not real fear, but like worry I have when I go to a horror movie that the audience is going to totally ruin the experience for me by just like laughing or talk like they're there to go and make fun of horror movies together, which is fun. I used to do that with my friends, but we did it in like our parents' basements. We didn't do it at the movie theater. But there's a particular thing, I think, when some people go to horror movies where like Maybe they've been roped into seeing a horror movie with their friends and they don't particularly like horror movies where they might need to, like, distract themselves from a genuine fear that they have, which I get. Um, My brother, your brother-in-law, who we've already shouted out to this episode, hates horror movies so much. Like, I cannot convince him to watch Parasite because I've ruined his trust in, like, I've been a terrible human being and lied to him about things being scary before and now he doesn't trust me, which is fair. Um, so he doesn't believe me when I say Parasite is not a horror movie, <laughs> but, and that's fair. I did that. That's my fault. But I've watched things with him before and, and I notice him start talking a lot when things start getting scary to distract from the fear or we, this, uh, this October we went to, um, the haunted house. What was it called? Uh, after no. at Fort Edmonton. Oh, you just, the location? Yeah. Fort Edmonton Park. No, what was the place thing called, though? Uh, I don't remember. Anyway, yeah. this haunted house thing that Fort Edmonton did. 
And one of her really good friends kind of laughs in anticipation. Like it's like this nervous laughter. So as we're going through the, and I was just scared out of my mind at the haunted house. Because while I love horror movies, I don't like real things jumping out at me. So like we're going through, I'm like cowering and in like anticipation. And then our friend is just kind of laughing as we go through it. So I get that real need to like, I'm afraid. I didn't want to go to this movie anyway. And I'm distracting myself from it by laughing or talking or whatever. But there's another thing that I find people sometimes do at horror movies, which is they perform their fear. Yeah. And that I'm a little bit less tolerant of. So it's the like, oh my goodness, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. This is so scary. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to take your experience away from you, but I don't know that you actually are scared. And I will say X is not scary. Is it gory? Yes. Is it graphic? Yes. Are there some like jump out moments? Yes, but scary, like a sustained level of fear. I felt that more in House of the Devil. Yeah. So there were some folks in front of us who were, for the most part, good. But as soon as the movie kind of ramped into, like, the now we're moving into scary territory, there was some, like, what I interpreted as performative fear happening in a way that just kind of grated on me. Where I'm like, I I don't think that we all need to hear that you're scared again and again and again and again. So uh, that's my movie theater gripe of this week. Tune in next week to hear what I'm sure will be a new one. But to get back to the actual movie. Yeah, just something else I want to say that I I feel like Ty West does really well and takes a really unique stance on and has in the movies that we've seen of his is that he likes to take these beats within the movie to humanize his antagonists. Mm -hmm. And he he does that here. And it's strange because audiences don't necessarily have the patience for that and they typically laugh at these moments yeah i and i don't think they're played for humor i agree there was a lot of moments that the audience was laughing and it didn't particularly bother me but i'm like i don't i personally don't think and i could be wrong but i personally don't think that ty west meant for us to laugh here or if we did he wants us to interrogate that laughter yeah like why are you laughing at this moment which is something i felt in midsummer as well Mm-hmm. And hereditary, where I'm like, I'm laughing, and I think that Ari Aster knows that these moments are going to feel so uncomfortable that people might laugh. But I also think he wants us to like sit with that discomfort and ask ourselves why we're laughing. And I felt that like a lot in this movie, and I didn't, I didn't laugh at those moments. Neither, yeah, neither did I, because I agree with you. Like, I don't think they're played for laughs. No. But I I appreciate because I feel like he did this. It's been a while since we saw House of the Devil, but I feel like he did this there too, where we kind of get these little glimpses or lingering shots or lingering moments with our ante- our main antagonists, who, to be clear, are antagonists within the movie. Mm-hmm. But he likes to give them these little extra moments, which you know, if this movie were made in the seventies or eighties, wouldn't exist. Yes, which adds to the freshness and the kind of nuances of his films. One, you know, without giving anything away. I mean, I think we both liked this movie. Yeah. Is it my favorite movie horror movie I've ever seen? No. no. Uh, of the three horror movies of his we've seen, The Innkeepers, which we saw so long ago, I don't really remember. House of the Devil, which we just watched this October for the first time in this one. I think I like House of the Devil the best. Me too. Although I can understand why some people wouldn't. I've heard lots of people say it's too slow and not enough happens, but I thought the tension in that was played so well. Plus Greta um, Gerwig. Yes, and she's so 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 good in it but something that i i couldn't help thinking as i was watching this is i wish i was still in university because i could write such a good paper on this (laughs) um 
I just feel like he is exploring our discomfort with the body mm-hmm. in kind of a like three distinct ways. So our discomfort with the sexual body, our discomfort with like the body as something that can be broken, that can decay, that can be ripped apart, you know, the, the typical body horror thing. And then also our discomfort with the aging body. Yeah. And I think that there, those of you who are in university or about to enter university, there is a paper here to be written <laughs> about the way that he is tying those three different ways that we tend to feel discomforts about the body and how they play off each other. How, you know, certain groups are seeing the way that bodies are sexualized and freedom around sexual bodies as abhorrent at the same time that those people who think that that's so uncool um, and just terrible to to stigmatize the sexual body, they're feeling a discomfort at the aging body and that those two groups are kind of pitted against each other through the body that decays, that dies, that oozes, that explodes, that does all of those things that a body can do that makes make us super uncomfortable. Yeah. And to that point too, the practical effects were Oof. great in this. Phenomenal. I had, so, like, if you like gore, the gore was so fun. Yeah. Again, like... I've, I've a little bit of a broken record on this, but I just feel like once you start sticking with practical effects, it just again it roots it in reality, and you just you don't lose me. You keep me hooked and engaged the whole way through. And it's not going to age poorly in ten or twenty years. Yeah, like it's still going to be awesome. Um, now, of course, this movie is super graphic, both in its gore and in not super super graphic, but it is graphic in its depiction of like sex. The sexual body um so like i don't think it's a movie for everyone mm-hmm. but i think that uh for what ty west is wanted to do with it i think he did it really well i have something really silly to tell you yeah go ahead <laughs> so i knew going into this that this was really an homage to texas chainsaw massacre which is one of my absolute like the original texas chainsaw massacre is one of my absolute favorite horror movies of all time every time we we rewatch it i'm as enamored with it as I was the first time I watched it in my dad's basement on a VH, VHS taped from satellite. As we're watching it, I and it came up on the screen that like this movie is set in Texas. I was like, where is Texas Chainsaw Massacre set? No, oh, In my head, I said that. And then I was like, oh, you're so silly. Whoops. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I wonder where it's set. So, uh, wow, I'm good with geography and, and names. And speaking of the geography, I thought the... Uh... The setting's great. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you always kind of hook me with that very Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like out in an abandoned farm in the middle of nowhere, late seventies. Like that just okay, messed up stuff's gonna happen here, <laughs> and um, it does. Yeah, something else I, I want to say that really stuck out stuck out for me were were the transitions he chose to use between scenes. Oh yeah, though that one particular one he uses a couple times. Yeah, so unsettling. It's such a um oh what's the word i'm looking for it's such an interruptive yeah yeah like you think you're kind of gonna be staying in the scene for a bit and then it rips you out of it then brings you back and then it rips you out of it again yeah it's jarring yeah yeah thank you that's the word i was looking for like and it's used frequently throughout the movie at very at very key times and i haven't seen it before so i'm telling you there's there is there's a PhD dissertation in this movie. I'm telling you, <laughs> somebody's got to do it because I can't. Yeah. We're busy. 
yeah. We don't got time for university papers. Yeah, it was a ride. Also, pay attention to the milk cartons. Also, apparently there's supposed to be a post-credit scene that Our theater didn't have it. We we were waiting for and it just never came. And unlike MCU movies, they don't like Ty West movie post-credit scenes aren't getting like uploaded to the internet the second the movie airs, so I haven't <laughs> been able to find it either yet. I'm sure I'll eventually be able to find it, but yeah, so for our second A24 movie of the week, second movie in the theaters of the week, how did it make you feel? It made me grateful that our knowledge of horror movies has made us hyper aware in potential horror movie scenarios. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's great. I, like, I still feel like I would get killed, like, without a question, because I do not have the gumption of a final girl. No. But Do I? I, th- I think you would fare a lot better than me. <laughs> I don't have the gumption of a Fido girl, but I would make it further than you would. Yeah. Yes, what a compliment. Um, but I could recognize the situation. <laughs> like you'd, you'd clue in that this is like yeah. before, alarming. Yeah, before, before shit starts going haywire, I I would be like, okay, this is, this is not looking great, everybody. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd probably be like one of the first ones out. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we're, we're feeling a lot of gratitude this week. I'm noticing a theme. Word of the week. Gratitude. I don't know that we have any gratitude for this last one. So, Yeah, this last one was just we got home from seeing X. We weren't ready to go to bed. And we had also just stopped at the grocery store and bought a bunch of food that we had cooked in the oven. Yeah, anybody that's grocery shopping on a Saturday night past 9 p.m. is not buying fruits and veggies. No, it was chips and chips and chips and chips. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was just looking for something short to watch before we went to bed. And or while we go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And another movie that we saw a long time ago, and we're curious if it still holds up. We watched Phone Booth to continue our Colin Farrell journey as of lately. <laughs> all hot off the heels of the Batman and um, uh, after Yang. And his great Hot Ones interview, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Go we, check it out. I've been watching a lot of the press interviews lately with him and he just seems really awesome and genuine and excited about the work that he does but anyway yeah so phone booth came out in 2002 and oh boy does it feel like it (laughs) um it was directed by we didn't realize this till after it was directed by joel schumacher (laughs) yeah when that popped off on the screen we were like what (laughs) yeah and written by larry cohen it stars colin farrell forrest whitaker katie holmes rada mitchell and one more person that I won't say because it's very spoilery. Again, you know, wanting to see if this was still good. Was it still good, Kylie? <laughs> Not really. Um, full disclosure, I slept through much of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a funny turntable moment because I've given you such crap through almost all of our relationship for falling asleep in movies. I just wasn't really having it. And I I lulled in and out until you, like, finally noticed that I was lulling in and out. And then you were like, do you want me to stop? And there's 15 minutes left. So I rallied and I really watched the last 15 minutes. But no, it doesn't. It doesn't. For me, it didn't hold up. This movie is better than it should be. Agreed. But not as good as it could be. But yeah, exactly. And the only thing I'm thinking the whole time goes back to your comment you made in After Yang about everybody just speaking in their own accents. <laughs> this is just bad accents the movie. 
It's everybody in this movie trying to do a thick New York accent. <laughs> but not succeeding at all. And failing miserably. Yeah. Especially, you know, like I said, we love him as of late, but Colin Farrell is some sort of Irish New York hybrid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it kind of just ends up being nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, wow. Yeah, so that was something. Um, I just want to give a quick note that like the portrayal of sex workers in this is atrocious oh so bad so awful joel schumacher has no place doing what he does with like the is it three women yeah who are totally just played for laughs um really uncool totally something that i didn't notice when i saw this in the theater when i was 12 and that alone makes me unable to like this movie it's played for laughs, but it's also meant to grate on you and just yeah, and just like piss off the viewer. And... It's the complete opposite of humanizing sex workers. Yeah. Anyway, so I had to bring that up because I just I think that's when I was like, if you fall asleep in this, that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you gave yourself permission. I to did. Fall I was like, yeah, you know what? I don't even know that this is Jules Schumacher right now, but whoever made this movie, enough. Yeah, honestly, not much more to say about this thing. Like, I'm glad that we rewatched it because it always kind of sat in the back of my mind as a movie that yeah. was like pretty good for being one of those contained stories. What I'll say about it is I think it's a good gateway movie. Yeah. Like, I saw it when I was 12. I think it's a very light version of what, you know, by the time I was like 13, 14, I loved Seven. Mm-hmm. And I think that this was something that enabled me to like realize I liked those kinds of movies while not actually being scary itself, <laughs> the transitions in it and, like, use of, uh, like, filters over it are scary <laughs> from a 2022 perspective. Um, yeah, and not scary in a fearful way. <laughs> no, just there. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> um, do kind of love the way it twins with uh, Cellular, which I made you watch for the first time this year, and I loved, had on DVD, watched all the time as a kid. Which also is not great. Written by the same guy. Larry Cohen wrote both of them. Oh, really? Yeah. So one's like the contained version and the other is the... Well, and this one is like the killer is talking to you and you're stuck in a place. And the other one is like the so person who's been kidnapped is talking to you and you are you can't find them. So your cellular is just the mobile version yeah. of phone booth. Quite literally. <laughs> he was like, I had a good idea with phone booth. I'm going to do this, but cellular. You guys need stories about phones? Call Larry. <laughs> Well, I mean, this movie had in its opening sequence seems to have think it's saying something really smart about like the death of the like non-cellular phone. Yeah, they have this dramatic voiceover <laughs> talking about the death of phone booths and stuff. This is like one of the last remaining phone booths. Um, don't get me wrong. I I have some fond memories of like being at the local cinema and like my mom's going to pick me up and I collect call her and just say like, the movie's done, come and get me. And like, that's the name of the collect call. And then we like cheat the phone booth i think we're fine without phone booths both the movie and the actual thing mm-hmm. so yeah so how'd it make you feel tired i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep tired right. tired of 2002 tired of joel schumacher i had enough of him in batman forever i will say it did bring back a distinct memory of when i saw this in the theater with somebody that was a joint friend of ours who um from the get-go had predicted who the killer was and then there's like a point where you think you know who it is and they were like so proud of being right but then they weren't actually right um i do remember that very distinctly because i'm not somebody who tries to guess the endings of things like i just 
I'd like to just experience the movie. It's okay if you are somebody who does that, but that's just not something I do. But yeah, I will not be watching this movie again. Yeah, no, I think I'm good as well. Is it that time? It is that time. All right, let's do it. It's time to crown the bad dad of the week and the rad dad of the week. I'm going to let you go first. Hit me with your bad dad of the week nominee. Okay, my bad dad of the week nominee is Greta Gerwig's character from Mrs. America, Brooke. Same as you? Same as me. Yeah, she is not a dad, and that's a good thing. But she's bad. (laughs) She she has taken on this mentor role for her to-be stepsister and does nothing good for this character. I mean, Tracy ends up getting some stuff out of it, but like... Oh man, I was just like, get uh, stop with the way that you were treating this impressionable young adult. So I have a, a, the couple of notes that I have on the character of Brooke is that she's trying to impart all of the wrong kind of wisdom. Yeah, like and, don't take this advice. Yeah, but she's also very, she's toxic in a very general, generationally specific way. It's a good way of putting it. And her way of you know. Imparting onto baby Tracy how to approach adulthood and how to be a successful adult, it's all wrong. It's it's just bad advice. It's just, <laughs> so for those reasons alone, I'm just like, no, Brooke, you're done. <laughs> I love that we had the same person. So that's just like a You wanna know who my runner up was? I would like to know who your runner up was. It was Josh's dad in Big. <laughs> Just because he's absent? Yeah. <laughs> like, where'd you go, buddy? Like, like s- mom is freaking out, and it's like, never hear from your dad again. Your son's missing, presumed kidnapped. He's on the back of milk cartons. You were at the carnival, and then you're toast. <laughs> I do think Brooke is uh, more nefarious in a very subtle way. Yeah. Then. So, all I right, agree. all right. Um, so we agree. Bad dad of the week goes to Greta Gerwig's character of Brooke in Mistress America. Stick it, Brooke. So who did you, on the opposite side, bring to the table for our Rad Dad of the Week? My Rad Dad of the Week is the character of Yang, played by Mm. Justin H. Min in After Yang. I picked him. I wrote this down because it just felt so true. He has the knowledge to teach me everything, and the patience to allow me to learn it at my own pace. Oh, that's really beautiful. He's so gentle and so kind and so loving. He's everything I would want in a dad, especially a dad who would teach me everything I need to know about the world. I feel like I'm going to lose this one simply from the way that your voice moved into this very serious, genuine <laughs> register. But I am going to stand by my choice, which is... My rad dad pick of the week is Jared Rushton's character of Billy from Big. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hit <laughs> <laughs> me with it. Okay. Billy, once getting over the initial shock of his best friend becoming Big, is supportive, believes him, consistently helps him return to what truly matters, allows him to make his own choices while trying to steer him in the right direction and is ultimately there for him from beginning to end while making some like really adult grown-up mature decisions and like ways of just helping his friend out like i was really impressed with billy for a 13 year old kid yeah like i felt like he was being the dad 
to Josh that the absent father he actually have had wasn't being. Okay, so I hear everything that you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm going to lose. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the thing that he has against him is that he's a 13-year-old kid. And at, some, hey. and at some point, he just, when he gets frustrated with Josh, he just checks out. And But maybe you need your dad to do that so Sorry, I can't even say it. No, you maybe don't want your dad to do that. <laughs> I just need my dad to check out and just like get <laughs> off my case. Let me make my own mistakes. <laughs> get off my back, dad. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Whatever. I think Billy has like pretty impressive dad energy though. And we yeah. did say you don't have to act that like age and gender and whether you're actually a dad or not or whether you're human or not, Billy is human. Yang is not. Yeah. Doesn't actually matter in terms of if you're the best or worst dad. But fine, fine, fine. I agree with everything you've said about Yang. He can reign champion this week. Yes. And I'm so sorry, Billy. I feel like you you probably needed that win, but you did not get it. You didn't stand a chance, Billy. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> so, yeah, Yang, be our dad. You want to hit us with a little rad wreck? My rad wreck of the week are movie soundtracks. We've been listening, well, especially me, I've been listening to a lot of the movie soundtracks of movies that I'm not really wet, ready to walk away from the feelings and emotions that they put into me. So I've been listening to the Drive My Car soundtrack, I was listening to the Batman soundtrack, and now I've been listening to the After Yang soundtrack. And they have just been keeping me in the the zone and the state of all of these great films for a little bit longer. And helps me revisit them without actually having to see, be in front of a screen watching the movie. So I really highly recommend that if there's a movie out there that you really like or you really like the music from that, you know, check it out. And again, check out your local library. Go online. Stream it. However you go about it. That's my rad wreck of the week. Movie soundtracks. Perfect. Okay, kids. So that just about does it. We're going to get out of here. But before we go, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the first two episodes. Uh, we're going to be dropping a new episode every Thursday where we talk about all of the movies that we've watched over the past week and crown the new Bad and Rad Dads of the Week. But we want to hear from you, and we would also love for you to follow us over on our Instagram. Uh, the handle for that is baddad.raddad. You can also get a sneaky little peek at what we've been watching over on our individual letterboxd accounts our usernames are elliot cuss and kylie burton uh the spelling for that is in the show notes we'd also really appreciate it if you could drop us a rating a review or a follow on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you're listening from and that's it so until next time i'm kylie and my dad's dead i'm elliot and my dad's a deadbeat but remember not all dads have to be bad so good good Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.